Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. We kick it off with the COVID-19 vaccine plan announced in British Columbia yesterday. Here is Dr. Bonnie Henry. She says vaccinating everyone is going to take some time here. This is something that we are all very pleased to be able to talk about but I do have to warn you, it's going to be a bit of a road yet. Right now, we are only receiving small amounts of vaccine. And like every place in the world, we'll get the vaccine delivered to us in sequentially in coming weeks. Eventually, everybody who can and wants to get a vaccine will have access. But to be clear, this will not happen right away. We all need to continue to protect each other by taking those measures that prevent transmission of this virus. All right, Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. All right, let's talk to Dr. Anna Wolak now. She's a family physician. She's an assistant professor at UBC. She's a member of Masks for Canada. It's a group of doctors who support a mandatory mask rule across the country. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here once again. This is exciting news yesterday with the vaccine coming soon to British Columbia. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Oh, we're very excited about the vaccine. It's it's proven to be safe. The fact that it has passed Health Canada's very strict um, standards means that once it gets going, then this is, like you said, the light at the end of a, a very long tunnel. Okay, we saw some people in the UK, some reports out of the UK that some people had an allergic reaction to the vaccine, but is, is that normal for a lot of vaccines? It is normal for a lot of vaccines. And when you think about it, a lot of people are allergic to, well, everything. Some people are allergic to mustard. Um, so it the initial trials had excluded people with allergies. So the fact that this is new and we're seeing this now um, is not particularly... Um, a particular of a setback for the vaccine. It needs to be studied. We need to figure out why these people got the allergic reactions. We need to figure out what could be triggering the allergies. And then we need to figure out how to safely administer the vaccine to those who have allergies. Because a lot of vaccines are administered to people who have allergies to various things. Um, so it, it is a bit of a, it's a scary news. And because this is a new vaccine, a lot of side effects will make the news. It can get yeah. scary, but it is being monitored, and that's the good thing about it. The fact that it made the news is a good thing because then it means that our standards of watching are actually working. Okay, a lot of people are excited about the vaccine, of course, and most Canadians anxious to get it, I would say, but it's a significant minority of people who are concerned. Maybe they won't get the vaccine. Some people call them anti-vaxxers. Others are just saying they're concerned about how quickly this was rolled out. Can, can you comment a little bit about how fast this vaccine was developed? And should that be a cause of concern for anyone out there that maybe they might think, well, did they cut any corners here? How do I know this is safe? Absolutely no concerns. So it seems fast because when we think of how drugs are developed um, it can take years, and people were talking about that at the beginning of the year. But the corners that were cut were paperwork corners. So when you have a drug, you have to submit it for for approval. You have to submit it for, is this actually worth us 
the drug company's funding? And will this cause any significant benefit? And there's all of that in the background going on. All of that was gone because we could see that, you know, yes, this will benefit society. So the paperwork, the red tape, the applying for grants, applying for funding, running out of money and putting things on hold and applying for more funding, that's all gone because people were putting funding into this. Science has been there for a while. People talk about how scary is the fact that this is an mRNA vaccine. Yes, this is the first vaccine using mRNA technology, but the technology has been there. It's been used for cancer, for cancer treatments for years now. So they've, and it's been studied for rabies vaccines, for flu vaccines, for a whole bunch of other vaccines in the background. It's just never been able to come to fruition, mostly because of lack of funding and all that bureaucratic paperwork that's been cut. And in January, before the first cases even hit North America, we already got the genetic code for SARS-CoV-2. So the scientists were able to plug that in. So they've been working on this since January. So it seems fast, but the corners that were cut are not scientific corners. They guaranteed the safety, and we we, we should be able to take it and run with it. Okay, my guest is Dr. Anna Wolak. A lot of people wondering, well, who will get the vaccine first? That's one of the questions top of mind for many people. Let's have a listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry on that point yesterday. So we look at a number of risk factors as well as the geographically where the virus was um, affecting people the most. So the first um, batches in December um, in these two uh, sites will be provided to healthcare workers who work in long-term care and in those um, key frontline healthcare settings in our acute care hospitals. That's ICUs, um, um, emergency departments, and the COVID medical wards. Okay, Dr. Wolag, does that make sense to you? Frontline healthcare yeah. workers go first? Yes, it does. The frontline workers and the workers in the long-term care homes, because that's where we're seeing the, um, the cases rise. And we are getting very limited supplies at a time, so we have to... Um, make sure it goes to the right people where we can make the best effect in the shortest amount of time. My guest is Dr. Anna Wolak from UBC. She's with Masks for Canada. Awesome coverage for you today on the vaccine rollout plan in British Columbia. So much excitement for the COVID-19 vaccine, the light at the end of the tunnel. Here's the other side of the story, though. Lots of COVID still out there. The vaccines are going to take time. This fight is far from over. So here is the question. Should BC go to a stricter lockdown while we wait for the vaccines to arrive? Look what they've done in other countries, notably Australia and specifically Melbourne, where they brought in some very tough restrictions on COVID, seem to have gotten past the worst of it at this point. Have a listen to this report here from CNN. I'm very sad to have to... The Premier of Victoria, Australia, declaring a state of disaster for millions in the country's second largest state amid surging COVID-19 cases. People in Melbourne lined up at supermarkets Sunday ahead of an 8pm mandatory curfew. It comes after 671 new COVID-19 cases were recorded in a single day. The Premier says the current rate of community spread is far too high, so he's urging Victorians to comply with the restrictions. Only one person will be able to go shopping once per day, and they will need to secure the goods and services that are what you need. There's now a nightly curfew. People in Melbourne are not allowed more than three miles from their homes. Schools and many shops are closed. Exercise is allowed just one hour a day, 
and visits with friends are banned. We can no longer have people simply out and about uh, for no good reason whatsoever. In other parts of Australia, coronavirus cases are dropping, but Victoria is seen as the epicentre of a second wave. It had cases in the single digits in early June. There's now fear of uncontrolled community spread and the state of disaster allows for tough enforcement. This means that police and others have additional powers. Uh, we can suspend uh, various uh, acts of the parliament. We can make sure that we get the job done. The state of disaster declaration could last six weeks for the five million people of Melbourne. All right, it's really interesting to take a look at what other countries have done. You heard some of the tough restrictions they brought in there in Melbourne, Australia. Just one person being allowed to go shopping once per day. Schools and shops shut down. Tough restrictions on social gatherings. A nightly curfew. Wow, police enforcement powers there. And it seems to have worked. They've really driven down uh, the COVID transmission rate uh, in the country. Should British Columbia be looking at similar measures? Okay, let's talk about this now with my guest, Andrew Longhurst. He is a research associate with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He's a doctoral student at SFU. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Andrew, thanks for coming on. It's great to be with you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, thank you. When you listen to those uh, that report from Australia, what, what goes through your mind? Do you think what, what we should do the same thing here? Well, like many people, I'm very optimistic about what we're hearing about the vaccines that are coming online. And I think that is really reason to be um, excited and optimistic about uh, the year ahead. Um, but we still, as you said, we have lots of community transmission and we have uh, real challenges in a lot of parts of uh, Western and Central Canada, um, as well as here in BC, just in terms of um, continuing to uh, address um, and and keep cases down. So, you know, when we when we look at some of the international lessons, um, I think it's really important to keep in mind that um, when we're talking about um, a COVID zero approach or getting cases as close to zero as possible. Um, what was done in a number of countries, including uh, the state of Victoria in Australia, um, was there was a time-limited lockdown, um, and that was used in order to really build up a much more robust system of testing, tracing, isolating, and social supports for those that had to quarantine or isolate. And that's really um, been key, as well as another uh, a number of measures, including um, restrictions on interstate or interprovincial uh, travel, um, as well as um, pretty strict um, quarantine protocols for those that were coming um, from international travel, which we, we really haven't done um, in the same way in, in Canada. So there's a number of pieces to it. And I would say really importantly, taking a health equity approach in terms of ensuring that um, those that are made most vulnerable to transmission or or, um, or, or getting COVID um, need to have um, paid sick leave uh, in legislation. And so there are a number of key pieces, pieces of this, but I yeah. think um, it is important that we uh, we look at the lessons internationally um, about what's been successful, and a lot of those lessons come out of the Asia-Pacific. Right. Okay. So when you look at those other countries, obviously there's been tougher lockdown measures taken in a lot of other jurisdictions compared to British Columbia. Now, when you take a look at what we've done here in BC, how would you analyze the strategy that has been employed and rolled out here in British Columbia? Well, I'd first say I have a tremendous amount of respect for our public health officials and our elected officials. These are not easy 
uh, decisions to make, and it's a very challenging time. Uh, so it's you know it's important to keep that in mind. But as a health policy researcher, um, I think that um, taking a closer look and being uh, more comprehensive and I think thorough in employing a number of the principles that we've seen in countries that have um, pursued uh, a COVID zero approach or what. Um, uh, one uh, researcher um, out of Toronto, Andrew Morris, has called, let's aim for a no more waves approach. And, and I think in essence, it means we need to um, take the time to get our cases and community transmission um, as close to zero as possible. We may not get there, but it's a, we need a clear goal. And that's what a number of these jurisdictions have done. They set a clear goal. They modeled the time required to get there. Um, right. So in, in Melbourne, it was over just uh, about 111 days. Um, we probably don't need that much time. Um, and we probably don't need measures that strict. But they use that to get cases um, close to zero. They've had now 40 days of no domestic transmission in the state of Victoria, where Melbourne yeah. is located. And life has returned in large part back to normal while what maintaining a lot of... Those, those those international and domestic travel, some of those protocols. Right, right. Yeah, I have seen a lot of people may have seen the pictures coming out of Australia where it just looks like there it's sort of back to normal. There was there was I saw a photo the other day of a large a large gathering people at a a, a concert outdoor concert. Uh, of course, the thing to keep in mind, of course, it's summertime in in Australia, so I guess the transmission of, of the virus is, is less during the warm summer months. And it's also, you know, kind of uh, an island, right? So, I mean, a lot of the these countries, Pacific Rim countries in particular, that have achieved the success that you're describing are island nations. And doesn't that make it easier to control the spread of the virus when you're on an island? So certainly New Zealand, Australia, although, mind you, Australia is a continent with its oh, yeah. own um, borders, uh, interstate borders, just like Canada has provincial borders. Yeah. Um, South Korea, uh, Taiwan. Yes, there's there's clear geographical advantages to being an island nation. Uh, no question about that. But I think when we look more closely at a lot of the practices um, and strategies they employed, uh, it's, it doesn't just come down to that. Um, they have done more, as I said, around um, the quarantine protocols. So, for example, in, um, in Victoria, if you're coming in um, on a flight, there is a government-managed quarantine uh, process um, with a registered address in a hotel. Um, and unlike here, uh, we haven't really taken that approach. And so... What do we do here? Of, is it more like an honor system here? It's more like an honor system. And I think yeah. there, you know, certainly that can work. But I think what we've seen increasingly now is the non-essential um, cases that are coming from interprovincial travel. And so, you know, just I think uh, in the last week, we heard about a number of cases coming from uh, a hockey team uh, traveling yes. to Alberta to play. So there are a number of examples where we're continuing to import cases. And again, all of this um, is in the context of making contact tracing and making our surveillance more difficult. Um, okay. And then also as cases continue to rise, we're seeing more hospitalizations and more deaths. So right. everything becomes more challenging if we don't have better control of the virus. And so I think moving away from our current mitigation approach, which most of Western, well, all of Western and, and Central Canadian provinces have pursued that. The Atlantic provinces, I would say, have pursued more of a COVID zero approach. Um, and I think it may be time as we look towards trying to minimize 
I think the economic uncertainty and um, all of the challenges that come with the seesaw back and forth where we impose measures. And I would say in many respects, a lot of the measures that we're seeing now in BC um, are, are similar to what we would need for um, you know, what I have proposed in this um, recent piece uh, with the CCPA is imposing those measures to buy us time to get cases down closer to zero, um, but really uh, working on a number of the other uh, pieces of the puzzle to maintain that. So we come out okay. of that without having subsequent waves. You may have heard of the social media campaign that Andrew mentioned there, hashtag COVID zero. This is the goal of minimizing transmission of the virus with a tougher lockdown strategy like we've seen in other countries. Does British Columbia need to do that? Do you think we need to get tougher with a tougher lockdown here? My guest is Andrew Longhurst from SFU and the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Let's talk about people with uh, disabilities and the challenges that they face, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yesterday, the B.C. government, this is kind of surprising to see from this government, announced that they would claw back part of the supplemental COVID-19 benefit for people with on disability assistance. So it was $300 a month to help people with disabilities through the COVID-19 pandemic. That will now be cut in half to $150 a month. Now, why is the government doing that? Well, they say it's because they have this other program that they're rolling out now, the $1,000 per family benefit that you've heard about, $500 per individuals as a pandemic recovery benefit. So they said that justified clawing back part of this disability assistance that's been given out to people with disabilities in British Columbia. I'll tell you what, I've heard a lot about this from people with disabilities the last 24 hours, not happy with this uh, move by the BC government. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Carla Vershore. She is the executive director of Inclusion BC, and they advocate for uh, people in British Columbia uh, with disabilities. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. And uh, this is an interesting issue. This kind of surprised me a bit yesterday when I heard that this uh, this government was doing this. So it was it was $300 a month, right? In right. that dis- yeah. yeah. And when did they bring that in? That was one of the most earlier um, income support benefits brought in in the early spring. So, right. yeah, it was a surprising move for us as well. Really, yeah, really and is that, was that a big help? Because I remember in the early days of the pandemic, a lot of people said that you know people disabled people were kind of forgotten a little bit in the early days, and they were struggling too through this pandemic. And the government responded with us said, "Okay, we're going to top up your your disability assistance another three hundred a month." Was, I, I imagine that was a big help for people. It was it was a, an, an enormous help, and it was a, a first opportunity for many people to kind of experience what a dignified program might look like, right? Like we think of $300 a month. That was huge. That was so significant for so many people. It was a difference between going to the grocery store versus going to, you know, a community center for lunch and the food bank. Like these, this, this was life-changing for a lot of people. And the other aspect of it that was really important and I think really is what was not acknowledged in this recent announcement is that it was streamlined. It was automated. It wasn't something that people had to jump through a bunch of hoops to get, right? Right. And and I think that is a very much attached to what economic stability feels like, is when you have a predictable income from month to month to month to month, you can plan, you can, you know, all these things that contribute to our wellness. And what happened yesterday really did set us back, and it would, you know... Um, 
and I think the piece that was lost is that, yes, people with disabilities can qualify for the additional $500, $1,000 supplement, but there's an access barrier, right? All of a sudden now it's based on another application process that people are going to need to get support and accommodation to use and apply for. So there's right. this, extra, this unnecessary barrier introduced, which I think is probably, well, that it, we have no certainty after the end of March, plus this additional barrier to access that is just really discouraging people. And, right. yeah, and disappointing us as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I've heard a lot of people from disability advocates and disabled people who've contacted me here in the last 24 hours. Yeah. And, like, we are disappointed in this NDP government, uh, springing this on us. So it was $300 a month. It will be cut back to $150 a month for the months of January through March. March. And it's supposed to be temporary, right? Like, it, this is supposed to help people through the pandemic. So what happens after March? Do they cut it completely or could it be extended? So, so this is this is one of the pieces that um, has really been frustrating. And so I would just like to share kind of what my vision of what I was hoping sure. 2021 was going to come through. So um, as we look across the country, and Inclusion BC is a provincial hub for Inclusion Canada. So I have opportunities to talk to lots of my provincial territorial, territorial allies on this as well. And we have made some of the biggest momentum in a federal disability strategy, right? And it, which is, which much talk of a, a federal disability benefit. So, and the federal NDP recently introduced the number of $2,200, which is really what we've been advocating wow. for for years and years and years. So what I was really hoping to see from the provincial NDP is that they would keep the $300 a month supplement going and committing to keeping that going until the federal benefit could start rolling out in the in the late spring, early summer, right? So that would give people that, that stability, that guaranteed income, if you will, moving forward. Now, this setting us, you know, this recent decision kind of set us back on that vision of kind of what it could have been. But I do yeah. think there's still an opportunity for the provincial NDP to lead and, and lead um, with respect to the other premiers in the country in the sense that ensure that when that federal supplement does start to roll to the provinces, we're going to guarantee that there'll be no clawback of that and that it will not negatively impact anybody with a disability in any way. Was there any... There's there's some opportunity to redeem themselves here, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay, was there any consultation with with your group or other other groups on on this? I mean, Inclusion BC is one of the major organizations in the province representing people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I know you're a federation, so you work with a lot of different groups. Mm -hmm. Did they come to you and tell you they were going to chop this uh, benefit in half? No, and oh. I guess that's, oh. you know, and, and where our, when our pre-election, there was a lot of government tables and then things started because of the nature of an election and the way community and government worked together during that time, some of those tables were unable to meet. But we certainly would not have suggested that this would have been a strategic path forward. Okay, that's disappointing to hear. Um, can you talk a little bit, Carla, about how people with, with disabilities, how they've been impacted by this by this pandemic? Well, uh, there's certainly been like that. As we talked about it, economically and particularly a group that we're not even talking about that have probably been hit the hardest are those younger families, right? So, families that are supporting young children with disabilities. And um, the BC Poverty Report card from the First Call Coalition just came out 
and it's their 25th report card. And we're still experiencing a child poverty rate of one in five children. And statistically, we know children with special needs and diverse um, learning needs are highly represented in that group. So when we look across our income security system in general, that is a group that has been hit particularly hard um, with being unable to access employment or previously employment to be, you know, the 24-7 caregivers for their vulnerable youth. So, I mean, that, that has been one of the most difficult um, things to navigate in terms of how do you get support to those families. Uh, the, you know, the other thing, and I think it's something that we talked about a lot, but it's maybe not unique or new to the disability community is the impact of, of isolation and, and yes. social isolation. Yeah. And that has, again, impacted people very, very hard. And well, I would say probably disproportionately people with disabilities. Yeah, no doubt, I think. And especially when so many programs that people who, uh, who are disabled British Columbians who rely on, on programs in their lives, a lot of those programs are suspended and shut down during during COVID, right? Oh, absolutely, or or reduced, significantly reduced. I think we're operating somewhere at about 60 to 70% of our in-person supports. And virtual will work for some, but it's not going to work for everybody, right? Right. And and that's that's the really tricky piece about all of this, is that there's just some people where that, the the technical divide is there and it could be an access point. It could be language. It could be tech skills. Like there's a variety of reasons for why we see some um, discrepancies there in terms of what's working for some people and not working for others. Um, So so that's, that's huge. Right. right? And I I do really worry about rural and remote communities in those conversations um, where I know access can be limited again for a variety of reasons. My guest is Carla Viershore. She is the executive director of Inclusion BC. They uh, advocate for children, youth, and adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities in British Columbia. 604 280 9898 is the number. Star 9898, toll free on yourself. Let's go to some phone calls here. Linda in Vancouver. Hi, Linda. Oh, hi. I'm a home share provider for CLBC. And I have two young adults living in my home, and they have come to really rely on that money because their programs have been shut down because of COVID. And also now they're spending more money in the home, like buying instruments, video games, um, and they're scared to go outside. I mean, they are scared to catch COVID. So they're in the home. They're spending money on items that they can use in the home. This will devastate them. Okay, Linda, thank you for calling in. And that's a, someone from the front lines here. And I think that really puts it in, into perspective, Carla, that people will rely 300 bucks a month. I mean, that's significant for people here getting through this pandemic. But your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that was that social isolation piece that I was referring to before the break, where we know that that $300 a month was going towards you know, people's wellness, you know, activities that can contribute to their mental well-being, um, their physical well-being. And yeah, and they will, you know, the math is that they potentially could still receive those dollars. And in fact, I think it's $50 additional if they would um, apply for the additional benefit. But again, it's just the piece that's so frustrating to me is that now the home share provider says, Linda, well, we'll have to work with the two people she's supporting to fill out that application to ensure they can have that same same level of stability over the next well, three months. Yeah. So we have incredibly discouraging. I mean, if yeah. it's not broke, don't fix it. I mean, if this it's thing not, was... Exactly. Come on. Exactly. It, it was working well. 
Let's go to another call. Catherine in Surrey. Hi, Catherine. Oh, hi. hi. I just want to thank you for bringing this up because it is up my alley. Mm -hmm. I've been totally isolated. My parents passed away and they were my support. And my friends don't understand my disabilities. And it makes it excruciatingly hard in the winter time. And I just, I want to know, is there any advocacy for people that have autoimmune disorders? Okay, Carla. Well, I mean, I, I don't know specifically that narrow, but what I, what I will say is Inclusion BC does have an advocacy line, and I'll share the number, one 488 4321 And, um, you know, anyone is welcome to call us to help us navigate a situation that they're experiencing. Certainly, we have an expertise in intellectual and developmental disabilities, but we really have opened up our services to support everyone in the way we can. If it's about how, you know, tr troubleshooting, how can I have more social engagement? What are some things I can contribute to participate in? Um, where can I learn more about what's going on? So I do really encourage people to email us and call us, and we'll do our right. absolute best to help navigate it for you. You guys have a great website, too. I encourage to inclusionbc. Oh, yeah, inclusionbc.org is, an, is another uh, really good uh, resource. Sonia in Langley, hi. Hi. Hi there. Um, Go ahead. I just, I just want to say about the, the, um, the changes to the 300 of... I just very disappointed in the NDP for that. As um, I uh, was hoping that they would do more, but unfortunately not. And I just found that it helped me out tremendously with buying decent food and, and clothing. As I'm also a type one diabetic, so it helped me out huge. Okay, thank you for calling in. Now, to be fair to the government, that their explanation for this once again, Carla, is they're saying, "Well, yeah, we're we're cutting it in half, but." We're bringing in this other benefit, the BC recovery benefit that people will remember from the election, $1,000 per family, $500 per individual. So that is coming. So that's the, that's the rationale or that's the justification for this, right, Carla? And I, and I think in their attempts to be fair, they maybe forgot what equity looks like. And for, for people with, with disabilities, it's often the access point, right? It's very seldom the characteristic of disability that marginalizes people. It's the systems of support and access points around them that do. Yeah. And this was, this was a bit of a step backwards. All right. It sure was. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Brent on the open line in Langley. Hi, Brent. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hi. Uh, good morning, Carla. Um, I'm actually a person with a disability, and I'm very disappointed that uh, <clears throat> the way that they, uh, the clawback, the $300 clawback is what we call it, um, yeah. has materialized. I mean, the $300 was a predictable amount. I mean, during the pandemic, the government, you know, originally, as we all know, it came out in March and said, hey, uh, you know, we're going to make this as a temporary measure. Well, as cost of living has not gone down, it's actually going to be going up next year. And it's uh, putting a lot of fear, anxiety, and stress into people with disabilities. And then hearing that, oh, you're going to get $150 uh, for January, February, March, and then have the option of applying for a $500 supplement where not oh, everybody yeah. has access to Internet. Or maybe, you know, you can do it over the phone, line, well, phone lines. Well, what happens if uh, the phone lines are all clogged up or you don't have access to the uh, Internet? Uh, you know, then that's you might might or may not get it. Then you're only going to get 150 dollars till March. Then what? No, I hear I, I you. Think it should have been permanent, really. Yeah. I mean, thank you, thank you, Brent. I hate to cut you off. You just got less than a minute left, Carla. If you want to sum up. Well, absolutely. I mean, and 
attaching it to a tax-based system is is, is additionally frustrating because, as we know, support to do your taxes is is this continuing and ongoing challenge, particularly for people that are in poverty that don't necessarily have any incentive to do their taxes, right? So that was extra backwards. Uh, But I do think we need to just kind of keep our our vision moving forward and, you know, work with them around this unfortunate decision and get that federal supplement rolling in and really work towards some okay. long-term stability and money in people's pockets um, that will lift them out of this depth of poverty that they've been experiencing for far, far too long. Thank you for coming on today and thanks for the great work you do there at Inclusion oh, BC. My Appreciate pleasure. It. Thanks for covering the story. You bet. Thank you. Carla Vershore, she is the executive director of Inclusion BC. They do an awesome job over there advocating for disabled people. Inclusion BC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. There have been a lot of restrictions and shutdowns for many different BC businesses and industries because of COVID-19. One thing that remains in operation, however, is BC minor hockey. Does that make sense to you or should hockey be shut down? Our show contributor, John Jang, joins us now for more on that discussion. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. It's the question that we're asking right now. Should junior hockey be shut down in BC? This following a great tweet from our friend and colleague Keith Baldry earlier in the week when he just pointed out that, look, the tourism industry, devastated. The restaurant industry, struggling. So why is junior hockey seemingly exempt from some of these shutdown and rules? So... I admit, I am not a hockey parent. I'm not even a parent for that matter. But we are now joined by our senior reporter here at 980 CKNW. Her name is Janet Brown. And she is uh, not just one of the best in the business. She's also unabashedly a proud hockey mom. So, Janet, right off the top, let me ask you this. Should junior hockey be shut down in B.C.? Well, let me say something off the top first. You said that junior hockey, that minor hockey is exempt. It is not. It is not exempt whatsoever, and neither are other sports that kids participate in. There have been a lot of uh, difficult, stringent, good rules that were put into place by, for instance, Cloverdale Minor Hockey Association, where my son plays, and all the other minor hockey associations across the province. They worked with Dr. Bonnie Henry and her doctors and officials to come up with these guidelines at the end of the summer. And so we've been dealing with them ever since the beginning. And uh, again, I'm going to say, it doesn't matter what I think about these rules or what other people think about these rules. These are the rules. This is what we play by. I'm not going to interpret, I think they're good or bad or otherwise. I think they're good rules because she's the expert and we're following them. So let me give you an idea how it has been for minor hockey since the beginning of September, really. Uh, At first, we only had practices 
is, along with other minor hockey associations. And and we only had practices until very recently, actually, when uh, Bonnie Henry eased up restrictions somewhat and moved minor hockey and other sports to Phase 3, meaning there could be games. Uh, But Phase 3 did not last for very long. And Phase 3 still meant that you still had to play within your community, within your city, no travel involved. We could not go from Surrey to Vancouver or North Vancouver or Whistler or, or where have you, Sunshine Coast, where we normally play. So those were in place. Then the new restrictions came in last week. Dr. Henry moved everybody back to phase two, where we were at the beginning of the season, which meant no games again, only practices. But when there's only practices, John, or games, the COVID protocols have been excellent. They've been strict from day one, as I've said. Kids get dressed in the parking lot at the rear of their parents' vehicle. They cannot be near fellow players. So there they are down to their skivvies at the back of the vehicle in the dark or in the pouring rain getting changed uh, from their workout gear or whatever they're wearing into their hockey gear. Um, No congregating before games or after games. No hockey bags were allowed, are allowed to go into the arena. They just carry a tiny bag with their helmet and whatever else they need, gloves. Uh, They have to wear a mask going into the arena and exiting the arena. They have to line up outside the arena uh, two meters apart, and now it's three meters apart. Uh, They have to be there on time. If anybody arrives late, they cannot go into the building. They all have to go into the arena together. There has been no hitting allowed in games or practices since early September. Uh, As I say, trying to stay physically distanced also on the ice. So, you know, we've been dealing with all these rules and regulations, and parents also have been living under rules and regulations as well. No congregating in the parking lot. You're right. It's a different experience for not just the players, but of course, everybody involved, including the parents. So I'm curious here, is it all worth it? Does it feel like those intrinsic rewards are still there for the players? I have to say, at least the kids are still getting together and they're still seeing each other face to face, even when they are practicing. You know, they, my son lives that. He lives to see his hockey friends, even if it is socially distanced, lined up, you know, talking to each other from a few meters away outside the arena as they wait to get inside or on the ice. And so I think that's a good thing. And, and I know a lot of parents have told me if, if that is taken away, if, if hockey is totally shut down, They're concerned for their children's mental health and well-being. But you know what? Yeah, I agree with that because it also keeps the kids, you know, off the video games and the computers and whatnot, and it provides exercise for them. But you know what? At the end of the day, this is how I feel. If Bonnie Henry decides to shut us down, she decides to shut us down. This is not permanent. This is just a time in our lives that we are going through. And, you know, the vaccine is coming. Things will end, people. Don't think it's all doom and gloom. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And this is just a time that we have to get through. And I know what I tell my son quite often is, you know what? This is not a time for a pity party. Just be thankful. You know, you're going to school. You are able to get on the ice and practice. And, uh, you know, we just have to buck up and get on with it. Well said. And I'll point out from personal observation, there haven't been a large number of COVID-19 cases in BC hockey, but it's in the dialogue. It's in discussion right now because uh, we heard that story last week. An adults uh, beer league hockey team in the interior apparently traveled out of province for a tournament, came back with a lot of positive cases for COVID-19, recklessly and just willfully breaking those rules. 
But that, again, is a beer league and not a representation of the system that is in place for what we're talking about right now. John, before we wrap things up, could I just say quickly, I know I've gone on and on, but uh, just something I would like to add. There have been no COVID cases on our minor hockey team. Uh, there have been no COVID cases, as far as I know, in Cloverdale minor hockey. And yes, that men's hockey group that went to, I believe, Alberta, yeah, people are mad at them. They're angry that uh, whatever they did caused you know, a ripple-down effect to, to put us back to phase two. But uh, the minor hockey associations, they're very well looked after, watched, and guided by managers, the presidents, all sorts of people involved. And uh, it's been run really, really well. And it's unfortunate that 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 team in the interior decided to do that. Uh, But regardless, at the end of the day, we have to play by the rules, do what we're told. And if we need to be shut down, we need to be shut down and try to stamp out this terrible, terrible virus. She is our award-winning senior reporter here at 980 CKNW, Janet Brown. And Janet, thank you so much for giving us some time and providing a very valuable perspective on the matter. My pleasure. Thank you, John. All right. That was our own John Jang's interview with CKNW reporter Janet Brown. And John joins me now. John, great job on that. Janet Brown is, she's a real, she's a super hockey mom. She She's the ultimate <laughs> hockey mom. I think she does great. Um, and I thought she laid it out really clearly, some of the rules and restrictions that minor hockey's operating under right now. But I guess, is there, are there some people out there, are you picking up on this, that some people are wondering whether it should be shut down? Yeah, I mean, that's the uh, the big question right now, because yeah. while industries, like we pointed out, tourism, restaurant, they're struggling, in some cases, completely decimated, really, uh, it does raise the question, you know, why are... Um, uh, some hockey leagues still operating when we know that this is a very dangerous time. But I, I agree with you, Mike. I thought Janet did an excellent job just breaking down some of the protocols and regulations and rules that are in place to make sure it's done safely. And as she pointed right. out, COVID-19 numbers in BC minor hockey have been minimal, to say the least. Right. Now, I, I grew up in kind of a hockey family. I was a terrible hockey player. Awful. <laughs> but my, my brothers were really good players. And our family spent a lot of time in hockey rinks when I was a kid. And it was a real bonding thing. It was a real great thing for our family. And, you know, ho- minor hockey in Canada is kind of a, an important thing, especially for a lot of families. So I think a lot of families would be disappointed uh, to see any new restrictions come in with mar- minor hockey. But let's talk now about what I like to call the mystery of the mace at the B.C. legislature. This is a weird story. The mace, people may be familiar with this. It's the heavy gold scepter. It's got a big crown on top of it. And the sergeant-at-arms each day when the legislature is in session with much pomp and ceremony carries that gold mace into the legislative chamber it must be there by laws and precedents for our parliamentary system for parliament to meet and to pass laws that mace has to be there and of course it's protected very closely so in the speaker's office at the bc legislature there is a high-tech security system to protect that mace someone disabled the alarm that protects that mace in the speaker's office at the legislature. Why? Who did that and why? The police are now investigating. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Alan Mullen. He's the former chief of staff in the office of the speaker at the legislature. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Alan, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Nice to be back with you, Mike. Okay, the mace is... Uh, it's been around for hundreds of years as a parliamentary symbol. It, I guess it represents what the supremacy of the royal authority, right? 
That's exactly right, yeah. And yeah. as you just referenced there in your opening, Mike, government can't sit unless the, the mace is in the chamber. Uh, right. So it's very, very important to government. It really is. Okay, so at the B.C. legislature, where is the mace normally stored? So when the mace is not in the chamber, i.e. when the House is not sitting, the mace right. is stored on a mantelpiece in the Speaker's office. Okay, well, and that makes sense. And there's a security system there, right? There is. So the, the, okay. the mace is alarmed in the, in the Speaker's office. So anytime the mace is uh, moved or actually removed, then uh, you know, it, it sets off an alarm. Uh, in the the protective services dispatch right so it's like a silent alarm that would ring in kind of the security center at the ledge right and it would it would tell the security officials there that whoa someone is messing with the mace here that's exactly right so yeah. i mean obviously you know twice a day when the house is sitting that alarm would be activated uh, you know obviously dispatch would know okay it's you know it's 10 a.m the mace is being removed to go into the house and they would simply acknowledge that alarm Right. Okay. But if it went off at another time, like let's say when the house is not setting, they would, I guess they would hustle down to the speaker's office and find out what's going on, right? Yeah, they absolutely would. Yeah. And I've, I've actually seen it personally where, you know, the mace got bumped or, or whatever the case. Oh. And literally, Protective Services is there, you know, in seconds. Uh, it, it's, it's very important and it's, it's a big deal. Okay, Alan, tell me this weird story here about how it was discovered that the alarm had been disabled. Well, it's funny. So on the 28th of October, uh, I, I was in my office, and when I got there, the manager of, uh, of uh, facility services was actually, uh, you know, kind of doing some work to the mantelpiece. And what I didn't know, uh, funnily enough, was that mantelpiece actually lifts up. Uh, so when you take the mace off the mantelpiece, you can actually remove uh, four bolts and lift up that mantelpiece. And contained uh, under the mantelpiece is sort of a little compartment containing, you know, sort of wiring for the alarm, etc. So right. I noticed that, that this work was going on. And essentially, long story short, I was advised that that morning, uh, the acting sergeant at arms had attended the office to remove the mace, you know, to take into the chamber for, for some photographs, uh, at which time it was discovered that, when he removed it, uh, no alarm was present. Okay, so the alarm had been, what, disabled, shut off? I mean, what had been done to it? Yeah, so, so upon, you know, sort of further discussion, especially with the facilities manager, uh, it, it became apparent that, first of all, the four bolts that hold down that mantelpiece had been removed. Interestingly enough, those bolts had not been replaced, so they were missing. Second of all, it's not just a case of, you know, it got bumped or a wire fell off or whatever. It was shown to me in great detail, because I'm obviously not an expert in this, but it was shown to me in great detail that when you lift up that, you remove those four bolts deliberately, you lift up the, the mantelpiece, there's a small little box with two screws in it. Then you have to remove those two screws and physically remove or pull down a component, thus rendering the alarm uh, disabled. That's what happened. So it's, it sounds like someone, this would not have been an accident or a random malfunction, like someone deliberately disabled that alarm, it would appear. It is an absolute impossibility that it was an accident or that it was a malfunction. It was a very, very deliberate act. Four bolts were removed, then two screws were removed, then a little box was, was essentially removed. Uh, so there is no way that it happened on its own or it was just a malfunction or it got bumped. I mean, we're talking about... A, a, a process to to actually make this happen okay who did it do we know 
Well, we we don't know. I mean, that's why, uh, you know, the, the former speaker and I uh, said, ultimately, uh, I did a preliminary investigation and ultimately we said, look, we've got to get an outside agency in here. We're not happy with, with uh, you know, quote unquote, the investigation that has already happened. Uh, we need to get uh, Victoria Police Department in here, which we did. We met with them. Uh, two detectives have, have been assigned to this case. And we made it very clear. Uh, former Speaker Pleck has said, look, we're not interested in wasting anybody's time here. If you don't deem this, uh, you know, sort of worthy of an investigation, we are totally okay just sort of dropping it. We are not into wasting people's time. And Victoria Police said unequivocally, absolutely not. We are investigating this. Okay, so there is an active police file on this. Victoria Police are investigating who disabled this alarm. Correct. Okay. But now, this is a weird story, man. Like, I'm trying to figure out why would someone do that. But no, no, no the, the mace obviously was not stolen, right? So someone... Someone disabled the alarm, and I guess at that point they could have just walked out, walked out of the office, maybe walked out of the legislature, stolen the mace, and no, one, and no one would have known. So wh- what does it say to you that the alarm was disabled, but the mace was not taken or just left there? Well, a couple of things. I think it's very important to point out, Mike, that uh, although this was discovered on the 28th of October, uh, you know, as part of my preliminary investigation, I find out, found out very quickly that the last time that that alarm went off was back in February. That is the most concerning part of this of this story because let me get this straight here. The most important symbol of government uh, is alarmed and that alarm was disabled back in February and nobody noticed and nobody did anything about it and eight and a half months go by without an alarm. Uh, that's, that's just absolutely bizarre to me. Like that is just totally unacceptable. That's number one. Number two, as you just referenced, if, if it was a, you know, a prank or somebody wanted to steal the mace, well, right. they would have stolen it. They had eight and a half months to steal it. Uh, the only conclusion, uh, and at the risk of you know, sounding like a conspiracy theorist or whatever, I've looked at a lot of different you know, sort of, uh, ideas and opinions and, and, and options. The only reasonable conclusion that I can come to, that former Speaker Plekis can come to, and a lot of people agree with us, is that somehow uh, the Speaker's office was compromised uh, in the form of a listening device was placed in that mantelpiece. Uh, I have a number of reasons to believe that. Uh, I will advise that back in April, we had enough reasonable grounds to suspect items such of this nature that I actually ordered the Speaker's office to be swept by a, pr- a professional group. That did take place back in April. Uh, so uh, I'm going down the road. That is, that is the road I'm going down. That is the road uh, Speaker Plekis is going down, and that is the road a lot of people are supporting us on because if there's no other reasonable explanation. It's not some elaborate prank. That doesn't make sense. It's not somebody was stealing the maze. That doesn't make sense because it would be gone. Uh, but we, I mean, look, we've, we've got a lot of stuff going on, as everybody knows. We've still got an active police investigation. Uh, you know, we, we have a lot of sensitive discussions and meetings in that office. Uh, to me, uh, you know, and I'm open to all suggestions, but to me, and in my experience, even in the past year in that office, uh, to me, that is the only reasonable explanation that I can land on. Um, well, you think so? You think someone was trying to put a bug, like a listening device, in in the speaker's office? You think that might be evidence of that? And you actually had the speaker's office swept for bugs, for, like for listening devices? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yes. Did you? What did you find? Did you find anything? No, we didn't find anything during that sweep. Like I said, that was back in April. And, and I know that it does beg the question of, okay, well, the alarm was, was disabled in February. You had the office swept in April. You know, everything is good. Don't, don't go down that road. But again, I'll, I'll remind you, Mike, that those four bolts 
that were that were securing the mantelpiece in place were gone. Now, if you're if you're Weird. you know sort of smart enough to get in there, take out those bolts, remove the alarm, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you're smart enough to remember to replace those bolts. In my opinion, <laughs> that's a very deliberate act. And what does that tell me? That is quick access, easy in, easy out. You can just without those bolts in place. You can go in there at any time and lift up that mantelpiece and, you know, put something in, take something out, whatever the case. You mean remove, uh, put in a, a listening device that you can quickly remove later. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So it, All right. It, 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 is, it is an incredibly bizarre situation, but yeah. it's an incredibly troubling situation. And it's, and it's, at the very least, like, an answer needs to be given. And there's a number of different questions. Obviously, like you said, who did it? Why yeah. did they do it? But right. also, how is it possible that that alarm was not active for over eight and a half months and nobody noticed? A few minutes more with my guest, uh, Alan Mullen. He was the chief of staff to the former speaker of the B.C. legislature, Daryl Plekis. Of course, we have a new speaker there now. Daryl Plekis has not run for re-election. Alan, just in the few minutes we got left, I mean, this has been a wild ride here uh, with Daryl Plekis when he was the speaker. We go back to just over two years ago when the clerk of the legislature, Craig James, was marched out of the building there. Uh, Gary Lenz, the sergeant-at-arms, we had multiple investigations. Uh, We had Craig James ended up retiring, and uh, Gary Lenz quit. We had uh, reports come out about wrongdoing. Wow, it's just been a wild couple of years with you in charge there as the, as the chief of staff in the speaker's office. Just in the couple of minutes we got left, where where are we at here with this thing? Because there's still a police investigation. Like These guys are not charged. They're not facing any criminal charges, but there's still an investigation going on, correct? Correct, there is. There, there is obviously the active uh, criminal investigation that's been going on just over two years now. Um, you know, that's, that's sort of where we're at with that, but, uh, you know, Speaker Plekis and I are over the top confident uh, that that this this we will be hearing something about this you know very soon. Obviously, I don't speak for the RCMP. I certainly don't speak for the special prosecutors. But you know, like, like this is not over here. Just because you know uh, Speaker Plekis and I are no longer in that office, uh, that does not negate the fact that there was clear wrongdoing. Uh, in our opinion, clear criminal activity, and this is not over here. So uh, you know. Just, uh, I hate to say it, and it's, it's the worst thing to say, but just wait and see. Uh, okay, we are, well, we are we'll, over the top confident. Okay, we'll see. Well, of course, in our system, you're, you're innocent until you're proven guilty, and nobody here has been charged with anything, and there's no been, nothing been proven in court. But obviously, there's still an, an investigation going on. Are, are, do you anticipate that these investigations, they just seem to drag on for literally for years, which has been the case here. This has been going on for two years. Uh, is this, do you anticipate in, what, early in the new year we could hear something? You know, again, I just, I, I just don't want to be putting any pressure or any, or, or throwing any rocks at anybody. I mean, the, I, I know the RCMP are doing their due diligence, as is the special prosecutor. So, but I, I, all I would say is, I am confident that you know, sort of sooner rather than later, uh, we will be hearing some news on this file. Okay, just going back briefly to this weird story about the mace and the mystery of the mace, as I called it. You described how that. That silent alarm that protects the the ceremonial mace in the speaker's office was disabled. Victoria Police are investigating. Just going back to your your worries about listening devices. Uh, did you guys so? How did you do that sweep? Did you guys bring in like an outside company to sweep the speaker's office for bugs? We did. Yeah, we brought in a, a, an outside company. Uh, based in Vancouver, one of the, probably the best uh, companies that that they they specialize in this type of thing. They've they've swept other offices in, in the legislature. It's 
it's nothing new to them. So, uh, you know, we brought in a, a bunch of professionals that uh, that swept uh, the Speaker's office and, and adjoining offices uh, this past April. Yeah, do you think that, people may not realize this, but, you know, other offices at the legislature have been swept for listening devices in the past as well. Right? Didn't they sweep the Premier's office for bugs? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's no sort of big secret. I mean, there, there's high levels of government that that do have their offices swept on a on sort of a, a regular basis and that's yeah. that's in every provincial government every federal government the prime minister's office is swept on a regular basis and that's just as a matter of course for you know security because of the sensitive uh, conversations that take place in the in these offices wow okay we just got a minute left here so we'll we anticipate we'll see what happens with these various police investigations that are going on but just in the minute left here when you look back on your tenure here as the chief of staff with daryl plekas as as the crusading speaker here trying to clean up misappro um uh inappropriate spending at the legislature what would you say is the legacy here of this speaker as we have a minute left well look i I couldn't be more proud of 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 daryl plekas uh as speaker he did something that has never been seen before he could have just sat there as the speaker and done the ceremonial stuff and taken the path of least resistance he didn't do that he got in there and he said look this is wrong there is something fundamentally wrong here and i need to do something about it as speaker and and as the independent and that's what we've been calling for and that's what he's been screaming for it serves the people of british columbia to have an independent speaker and moving forward, nothing against Speaker Shohan. I have the greatest respect for him. But as as a speaker, it just goes to show if you are an independent and you've got no partisan ties whatsoever, look what you can achieve. Thank uh, you, John. Th- thank you, Alan, for coming on. Thanks very much We're for having just me. I appreciate it a lot. Alan Mullen, sure. the uh, former chief of staff there for Daryl Pleck as the former speaker.